Welcome to episode 10 of Many Parts, One Love. This is the final episode of our Many Parts, One Love podcast, and today we are getting into parts, sin, and disordered love. In the last episode, we discussed how yourself and your parts can be a bridge between God and the parts of another person. Today, we're getting into the darker side of the spiritual life. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to start as we usually do with a conceptual piece, and then we'll move to an experiential exercise. This podcast, the Many Parts One Love podcast, is our premium podcast here in the interior therapist community, the ITC, especially for those who are in our advanced preparation for transcendence groups. Now, we're going to be talking about sin. So many questions come up when we are harmonizing IFS with a Catholic anthropology. So many questions come up about sin. And it makes sense because there is no theology of human sin in the spirituality of internal family systems. Now, in internal family systems, there is a recognition of evil. But in internal family systems, evil resides in unattached burdens, which are essentially spiritual entities, not part of a human being. These are spiritual entities like angels or demons, demons that can have malice and can influence human beings, right? So there is a recognition of evil in these unattached burdens. You don't read much about unattached burdens in the main texts about IFS because that's considered a little woo-woo. Richard Schwartz is hesitant about getting too much into that. But unattached burdens have been discussed for decades within IFS circles. Robert Falconer, an IFS therapist, is considered to be the foremost authority on unattached burdens. And according to his website, he's working on a book on unattached burdens tentatively titled, quote, The Others Within, end quote. And incidentally, he trained me about how to work with unattached burdens from an IFS perspective on my level one training. Now, according to IFS, parts are doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can with their limited vision and their limited resources and the roles that they've been forced into. There's this strong emphasis on not judging parts, not judging the person as a whole. There's this strong emphasis on appreciating that parts have good intentions, that they have reasons for their motivations. They have reasons for the ways in which they impel us towards certain decisions or certain actions. And so if you really unpack IFS in its sort of anthropological or philosophical notions, parts really can't sin. They make errors, they can have maladaptive coping strategies, they can make mistakes, but it's all due to this limited vision, it's all due to the fact that they are not infused with self-energy, they are not in a good relationship with the self, they've been exiled, they're, they're cut off in one way or another. According to IFS, therefore, parts really can't sin because they're not really morally responsible for what they're doing because of the situation that they find themselves in. And the self is perfect in IFS thinking and self-sufficient. So the self can't sin and the body doesn't sin either in IFS thinking. And since the person is the body plus the parts plus the self, there's no room for sin in any of those. So sin isn't a concept that gets much attention in IFS, right? There's no room 
for any evil or any sin emanating from the person except for unattached burdens, which really aren't part of the person anyway because there are these external spiritual entities. The understanding of the human person, according to IFS, is very consistent with enlightenment thinking, with the emphasis on the wonder and the beauty and the goodness and the glory of humankind. So this question of sin is a really important one for us Catholics who are looking to embrace the good from IFS in a way that is consistent with a Catholic understanding of the human person that is consistent with a Catholic anthropology. So let's go back and discuss sin. Let's back up a little bit. We have a definition of sin from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. From paragraph 1849, sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Paragraph 1850 in the Catechism says that sin is an offense against God. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done which is evil in your sight. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our hearts away from us. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God's, knowing and determining good and evil. Sin is thus love of oneself, even to contempt of God. And in this proud self-exaltation, sin is diametrically opposed to the obedience of Jesus, which achieves our salvation. So we're going to expand these definitions out a little bit. Let's look for the words for sin in the Bible. In the Greek Septuagint, that's the Greek version of the Bible, the word for sin, the Greek word, is hamartia. And in the Hebrew Bible, the word for sin in Hebrew is hata. And both of these words, the Greek word hamartia and the Hebrew word hata, are terms from the sport of archery. And what both those terms mean, hamartia and hata, what they both mean is literally to, quote, miss the mark, end quote, to miss the mark. So what is the mark, we can ask? What is the mark that we are missing? Well, first of all, it's not perfection. It's not following all the rules. It's not avoiding every imperfection. That becomes a trap. We can get caught up in scrupulosity with that. The mark is this deep personal intimacy with God, communion with God, loving God. Sin, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is a revolt against God. Sin sets itself against God's love for us, right? It turns our hearts away. And that's what we are denying when we sin, regardless of what our intentions are, right? I mean, regardless of whether there's malice or not, missing the mark, you know, that doesn't actually require malice. St. Augustine says, we will only be made perfectly happy when we achieve permanent possession of God, the infinite being, the being that encompasses all good in every possible world. And I just love St. Augustine because he defines human beings as lovers. Loving is an essential part of our human nature. Augustine defines love as essentially a movement of the soul or the heart. And his definition of love from his answer to question 35 of his book, 83 Different Questions, his definition of love is, quote, 
For to love is nothing other than to desire something for its own sake. End quote. The problem comes in when we have a disordered love. Basically for Augustine, sin is a disordered love. Sin occurs when we love something less than God for its own sake. When we love something less than God for its own sake, not for God's sake, but for its own sake. When we become attached to that person or that thing for its own sake, or if it, because it leads us to something that's less than God. The ultimate effect of that is to separate us from God. We're pursuing as lovers something other than God. So sin is essentially a disordered love, an attachment to something because it's a perceived good, but it is a love that misses the mark, the mark of orienting our whole being toward this deep personal intimacy with God. It's missing the mark of loving God above all else. So to bring this back into IFS thinking, when parts that are disconnected from a right relationship with the self, when parts with their limited vision, with their limited resources, with their narrow slice of experience, when those parts impel us toward loving something less than God for its own sake, or to trying to use something for the sake of something less than God, those parts can draw us towards sin. And we don't have to have malice toward God to have sin. You don't have to have evil intentions. You, don't, you just have to miss the mark. And for Augustine, we have to love the right things in the right way. When that love becomes disordered, we miss the mark and we fall into sin. Bernard Brady, in his book on Christian love, says the following, right? Quote, there are two types of love for Augustine. The love that lifts one upward like fire to God, which is caritas or charity, and the other is like the stone that falls down, taking us away from God, which is cupiditas or cupidity. Augustine says in his book on Christian doctrine, I call charity the motion of the soul toward the enjoyment of God for his own sake, and the enjoyment of oneself and of one's neighbor for the sake of God. So that's the good stuff right there, right? We are moved in love, charity, toward the enjoyment of God for his own sake, and the enjoyment of oneself and one's neighbor for the sake of God. But, Augustine continues, cupidity is a motion of the soul toward the enjoyment of oneself, one's neighbor, or any other corporal thing for the sake of something other than God. And Augustine says that in this life, there are two loves wrestling with each other in every trial and temptation, love of the world and love of God. And this is such a great quote from Augustine. He says, quote, I loved beautiful things of a lower order and I was going down to the depths, end quote. So we have to be really careful in what we love. If we love lesser goods for their own sake, we are missing the mark. We are falling into sin. And this is where parts operating autonomously with their own sort of impulse and so forth, really attempting to sway the will, really attempting to get the self blended and on board with their agenda, they can desire so many things for their own sake. Things like safety. 
things like security. Parts can often seek safety and security in things that are other than God. They can try to find safety and security in other relationships. They can try to find safety and security in isolation. They can try to find safety and security in hiding. They can be trying to be safe and secure, which is a good, that's a good thing to be safe and secure. But the way parts are impelled to do it can lead us away from God. We saw that in original sin, right? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate from the tree from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil and foom. Off they went to the bushes to hide from God. They were looking for safety and security, but they were not looking for safety and security in God anymore. And our parts often impel us in just this same way. Parts have desires to be seen, heard, known, and understood. They have desires to be soothed and calmed and reassured. They have desires to be rejoiced in. They have desires to be touched. They have desires to be held. They have desires to be fulfilled. They have desires to be completed, to find rest, to find joy, to find peace, to find a sense of well-being. St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Parts operating on their own generally do not find God. Why? They find counterfeits of safety and security. They find counterfeits of being seen, heard, known, and understood. They find counterfeits of being soothed and calmed and reassured. They find counterfeits of being rejoiced and of being touched, of being held. They find counterfeits of being fulfilled and being completed and finding rest and finding joy and peace. They find things that are not God. Why? Because when a part is not in right relationship with the self, it's got a distorted God image. Most parts that are not in right relationship with the self do not really want to enter into a relationship with God. That requires our inmost being. That requires what IFS would call the self. The self still decides. The self, even under the influence of parts, the self retains the capacity to make choices, right? In IFS language, when a part blends, it just takes over the self. The self is totally disempowered. The self is like totally like uh, incapacitated. I, I never really like that, first of all, because it's like the self is at the mercy of the parts. The self isn't the inmost being that has the final say in matters of conscience in IFS. That's not how IFS would look at the self. The self actually is sort of a hapless being inside at the mercy of the parts, that's something that's got to be much better fleshed out. So the inclination towards sin and evil in the Catholic Church as a result of original sin is called concupiscence, right? You can read that, about that in paragraphs 405 and 418 of the, Catholic, of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And you can see this inclination towards sin and toward evil in parts, you certainly can when, for example, a part is all about that cute little coworker in the office that gives me that look. Mm-mm. She or he is somebody that makes me feel so good. I want to be held. I want to be. I want to be understood. I want somebody to delight in me. I just feel so good when I'm with that person, and it leads into an affair. Right? You can see that the parts are seeking something good. They're seeking these basic attachment needs, but they're not doing it in a way that's ordered toward God. 
So parts can have this concupiscence. They have this inclination toward evil. It's something that they perceive as a good, something that they perceive as a need, something that is a real need, something that they desperately um, desire and something that they may desperately need, but they're going about it in the wrong way. They're not looking in the right place for safety, security, and all these other things. So an affair, for example, isn't usually done out of evil motives. Nobody cackles to themselves usually, unless it's a revenge affair or something like that. Nobody cackles to themselves and say, ha, 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 I'm going to have an affair because I wish to be evil. No, people slide into affairs because they are looking for something that is good. And they get drawn into a counterfeit. Parts that are not in right relationship with the self are extremely susceptible to concupiscence. Now, that said, I also believe that concupiscence can exist within us and not be in a part. There have been times where in my own system, at least with the parts that I'm aware of, I'm noticing concupiscence, but none of my parts seem to be associated with that. So I am far from convinced, at least in my own experience, that concupiscence has to reside in the parts. I think it can have an existence somehow in the person, but not in the parts. All right, so I also want to put in a little caveat here at the end that a lot of this is sort of speculative Melanoski theorizing about sin and evil and parts. We are very much on the cutting edge of this, um, trying to figure these things out. So these are my initial understandings of sin and concupiscence and disordered loves. Um, and how it at least seems really consistent with some things around with IFS, so that parts do have good intentions, and that's consistent with St. Thomas Aquinas, right? We always choose at least a perceived good. There's some reason why we seek a good, but there's a lot that remains to be worked out. And so we'll do just a brief experiential exercise. And so as we start, I'm just going to invite you to take a couple of breaths, notice where you are. Notice what's happening inside. I'm just going to invite you to notice what's happening in response to this whole question of sin. This whole question of sin. Can we appreciate this idea of sin as missing the mark? doesn't necessarily involve malice at all. Can embrace something that seems good but still misses the mark. Sometimes these counterfeits can be so appealing to parts. Are we willing to go inside and really work with parts of us that pull us to some lesser love or some disordered love?
Can we have a big open heart to those parts? Can we have our Catholic standard bearer managers, our good boy or good girl parts, give us some space to understand the desire and the need behind any concupiscence, behind any desires, any pulls towards something that would be wrong. that would be disordered. I'm gonna invite you to stop the recording once you get into touch with you know, a part that you're really working with that's willing to share with you like why it desires what it desires. And as you listen to that part's story, consider what that part is missing. What's fueling that part's desires? What's fueling that part's impulses toward missing the mark, the deep and abiding communion with our Lord, the deep and abiding communion with the three persons of the Trinity and Our Lady. A lot of gratitude for our parts, for the ways that they try to help, a lot of understanding of their limited vision, their narrow slice of experience, how, how they can miss the mark because of the lack of integration. A lot of gratitude for the space to be able to love your parts, to accept them, to embrace them. And with that, I want to say a big thank you to all of the members of the Preparation for Transcendence groups for our conversation, for our time together, for our sharing, for our friendship. You've been a blessing to me and a gift, and I treasure the time that we've spent together. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady. Our Mother, untire of knots, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. <laughs>